Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival. We're broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to Season 3 of the podcast. Thank you for listening and for donating. Your support allows us to continue to celebrate and spotlight great writing and important ideas. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Our host today is Amanda LeDuc. Amanda is one of the movers and shakers at the Festival of Literary Diversity and is also an acclaimed author of fiction and nonfiction. In 2020, she published Disfigured on Fairy Tales, Disability, and Making Space, where she asks, if every disabled character is mocked and mistreated, how does the beast ever imagine a happily ever after? And in the spring, she published an amazing novel, The Centaur's Wife, which I heartily and highly recommend. Her guest is Lambda Literary Award-winning author, poet, and screenwriter Zoe Whittall, whose latest novel is The Spectacular. It's taboo to regret motherhood, but what would happen if you did? Shifting perspectives and time periods, The Spectacular is a multi-generational story exploring sexuality, gender, and the weight of reproductive freedoms. Here's how Jen Sukfong Lee describes it. Fearless, challenging, epic. These are all words I have been using to describe the spectacular. Zoe Whittall's latest novel about three generations of women who are tied together by family obligations and a crooked connection to motherhood. Fiction often teaches us truths, and the spectacular does just that, laying bare the ways in which women are defined and the ways in which women can define themselves. Here's the conversation between Amanda LeDuc and Zoe Whittall. Thank you, everyone, for joining us at the Ottawa Writers' Festival podcast. My name is Amanda LaDuke, and it is my absolute pleasure and honor to welcome today Zoe Whittle, the author of so many books and the most recently released, The Spectacular. I get to talk to Zoe today about her new novel, and I'm just so excited. So thank you so much, Zoe, for making the time for this conversation today. It's lovely to have you here. Oh, great. Well, I guess to start, um, can you just talk a little bit about the genesis for this novel? I saw you had mentioned um, in one of your tweets previously that The Spectacular is a story that you'd been working on for the better part of, I think you said it was a, about a decade, um, or maybe even a bit longer, um, a decade in which you had another novel, The Best Kind of People, come out, and then that was all alongside your work as well as a television writer. So you've been quite busy. Uh, what was it like carrying the idea for the spectacular through all of this? Well, you know, it's, it's funny, the best kind of people, my last book was essentially a procrastination project, because I started the spectacular in my early 30s, and I'm 45 now. And it, I just sort of stalled. It was one of those situations where I had the inspiration for the story, but I didn't yet have the tools to bring it to fruition. And initially I thought that it was going to be an historical novel, or at least a good half of it would be. And, um, and then I didn't really, it's funny to say this, I just didn't know how to do it. It was like having to learn a new instrument. Um, and I tried my best, but everything sort of ended up feeling a bit wooden and like I was moving robots around the room. Um, 
And so I wrote the best kind of people instead. And then I returned to it after, and I came at it from a different angle. And basically what I did was I, I basically woke up every day between the ages of 32 and 42 and with the question of, should I have a baby or not in my head? And I never quite made the decision. Like I used to have a joke in my stand-up act about how much I procrastinate. And, and the joke would go something like, and one time I just procrastinated for 10 years and now I don't have a baby, you know? Um, and, uh, but there's some truth to that. And, and, you know, I was in two back-to-back -back relationships, one with a woman who didn't want to have kids. And then my ex-boyfriend already had two kids. And so it just, the circumstances of my life never quite supported it, uh, even when I really wanted that life. Um, and so what I tried, what I started to do was um, kind of take this emotional and intellectual preoccupation and turn it into the characters of Missy, Carola, and Ruth and their journeys. And so I wanted to look at all the reasons why you would choose to have a kid or not, or not choose to have a kid um, in, the, in the lives of these three people. And so at various points, at various ages and various eras, they all, they, they decide to either have a kid or not have a kid. Um, and it was sort of, I, and I also wanted to look at ideas of um, freedom of sexuality and autonomy and reproductive freedoms and just sort of look at how um, these characters decide to make their lives and decide what they want to live for at various points. Um, and that's sort of like, that's like the thematic preoccupation that inspired me to write the stories. And then there were more, um, you know, there are always things I've, I've always wanted to write about that I thought would be fun. Like I, you know, the best kind of people was a bit of a, a it was a very serious book and I wanted the spectacular to have some elements of, um, you know, sexuality and joy and curiosity and sort of like, a bit some adventures like I wanted I wanted the characters to um to live these vibrant lives and to uh, have to reckon with all the big questions while doing so but um but I wanted it a little bit lighter in some ways oh that's lovely it reminds me um the writer Sheila Hetty once said in a workshop um when you're writing you're essentially uh in the process of writing, becoming the person that you need to be in order to finish that particular book. Um, and I know it's, it's something that's played out in my own life. And so it's lovely to hear you sort of say the same thing here in, in that, you know, especially when you were talking about initially working with the idea for the spectacular and things feeling kind of wooden and then, you know, going away from it and revisiting it later and, and how you've changed as a person. I think it's, it's really quite a lovely thing to hear as a writer because I think there's often you know external pressure this feeling that you have to finish a book and you have to finish it you know in a comparatively shorter frame of time and sometimes there's stories that just take a long while to pull together and a long while to you know learn yourself into the writer that you need to be in order to make them happen um, so thank you for that um, that's really really lovely I really do feel like so much about how we write our books it has to do with timing and whether we're really ready to go to to do the depth of thinking necessary to like create a meaningful story and sometimes you know your aspirations or my aspirations certainly can can be bigger than 
what I'm capable of, of following through on. And, uh, and it's, it's something I don't quite know until I'm in the, the middle of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things when you, you talk about aspirations um, for the book, I know for, for me as a reader, I felt like it was such an extraordinary exploration of compassion for all of its characters, because you had all these minute details about their lives, and yet there were these gigantic, larger questions about what it means to live a life that has those moments, like Missy was talking about at the beginning of the book, of of the spectacular, right? These sort of grand firework moments of life and emotion and joy. And how do you then, you know, uh, reconcile that with the different things that happen to you as you age and the way that your life, you know, takes on different shapes? Um, And I was in this sense, really, really struck by the compassion for Missy as she ages, you know, she's, as we start the book, she's 22, and she has this kind of dark hard fervor around motherhood and not wanting to have any part in it, not wanting to have a child, which is, as we read, you know, very much related to her own relationship with her mother. And then, you know, there's these gradual shifts in her personality and desires around this as she grows. And I, I just thought it was so beautifully done because I, I have been there, you know, as a, a younger person holding these very sort of diehard, like, you know, this is this and the world is black and white and this will never change. And in my youth, you know, sometimes looking down, shall we say, on people who, who do make those changes, who make those shifts, right? And then, of course, <laughs> age happens to all of us, you know, it, it catches up with you and, and you suddenly realize like, oh, okay, you know, this is, this is what it means to grow as a person, to change and, and to, you know, suddenly have different beliefs or to suddenly find that you feel differently about something that you felt very strongly about in your youth. And I wondered if you could talk about that shift for Missy in particular and what was important to you in portraying it. Yes, that's a great question. Um, I was really, at some point when I was looking at the plot of the novel and how it how it moved forward and her character arc specifically, like I couldn't avoid the fact that there was, um, that when we meet her, she is very decisive about never wanting to be a mother. And then when we meet her three quarters of the way through the book at 38, she has changed her mind and wants nothing more than to become a mother. And um, I was a little bit worried that I was, you know, giving credence to the doctors in the first section who were refusing the operation that she was asking for. And I was sort of, you know, inadvertently um, sort of letting the reader know that they were right when that's not what I think. I think that any, that she should have had the autonomy and the ability to do what she wanted with her body. But I also feel like they're, they're, I, you know, I don't, I don't want anyone to walk away from the book thinking that someone who doesn't want a kid will eventually want a kid. That's not true at all. Um, but I am interested in like the specter of regret that, um, that, that gives, yeah, that power, that sort of systems of power sometimes um, will use to control women or and people like I was really influenced by the discussions around, um, you know, right wing the right wing and their the way that they use detransition or the fact that kids who want to transition might later regret it and the specter of regret looms large in the in this kind of like mythological um way that they speak about about um you know restricting the autonomy of people and what they want to do with their bodies and so and i remember going to an academic conference and hearing a, a speaker talk about detransition and and they said so eloquently and very simply, they said like, well, if people decide to detransition, then 
that's fine. Like we should allow anyone to do to be who they are at any given moment. And before I would have said like we should the specter specter of detransitioning is um, you know it's it's all it's all hype. It's what they want you to think, and most people don't, and blah blah. blah. And getting defensive about it, but the truth is that like in some circumstances people do choose that and that's okay to talk about and some people some people do change their mind about wanting kids or not wanting kids some people um you know i feel like the more discussion we can have about how people change throughout their lives the more interesting characters we can write into into fiction and, and the more ways we can allow ourselves to 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 shift courses over the course of our lives you know and i feel like um for missy it made sense in terms of her character development um because her you know her insistence that she didn't want a kid was partly just what she felt at the time you know she wanted to party she wanted a lot of different kinds of freedoms that come from being young and um not tied down to anyone or anything um and then you know your priorities can shift in your life um and I know for me, like I wasn't all that certain when I was young. And then I had this moment at, at a bar where I was talking to some older friends who an older couple had been together a long time. And I think it was at Pride and it was a very busy moment. And I was in my mid thirties and they were like, we don't want kids, you know, cause we would miss this. We would miss this moment. And I looked around the bar and I was like, in my head, I was like, I'm kind of, I'm kind of done with this. I'm done with this world. Um, even though it's really fun to come out once a year but I did feel like, oh, I'm bored. I'm starting to shift and feel more family oriented. And um, so for Missy and, and her journey with her own mother, the, the character of Carola, who does abandon her when she's a teenager, um, it makes sense that her, that her attachment trauma and her um, abandonment issues do come up when she starts, when she grows, especially when she grows older and starts to reckon with what she wants to do in middle age. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love how you talk about that specter of regret too, because I think it opens up again, a wider question, you know, that a lot of that conversation, I think, especially the conversations around detransitioning and the way that that's so often wielded by the right, um, the right wing side of, of things, it kind of, it, it's like people are afraid to have anyone experiencing regret in their lives at all. It's like people sort of hold on to regret as this thing that nobody you know people should be making the right quote unquote decisions all throughout their lives so that they don't have to feel regret and i think you know part of what you explore so powerfully in the book among so many of the wonderful things you explore in it is this notion right of of regret and how regret does settle into your life in various ways as you grow. I mean, it's, it definitely settles into the character of Carola, right? Her life and looking back on her relationship with Missy when she was younger and that, you know, sense of, and that, that reality of her abandoning Missy when she's a young child um, and, and how she looks back on that later on, but also recognizes that, you know, there were certain choices that she had to make that then meant that she carried this feeling with her, right? And there were other choices that she could make in her present that would not mitigate the regret necessarily, but, you know, ways for her to deal with it, ways to, for her to make change in her life as it was right then, which I think is such a healthy way to approach things, you know, rather than this focus on don't make a wrong decision here, don't do something that, you know, you're going to regret later on. We're all going to make decisions that we regret, right, at some point in our lives. And, and 
learning how to deal with that in a healthy way seems to me a much more, um, just a better way to approach it. So I really appreciate that that was woven so delicately throughout the book. And that leads into my next question, really. Um, another one of the things that I loved, which plays on that sense of regret, are the, the generational differences that kept playing out through the book and the, the three sort of central female characters, Ruth, uh, Missy's paternal grandmother, and then the character of Carola Juniper, um, because she goes by Juniper for a certain section of the book, Missy's mother, and then Missy herself, but then also uh, the differences in generational outlooks that occur between the different queer generations, um, and how our relationship to self changes through the decades. In the latter part of the book, there's a, a character who um, has transitioned to uh, being a male and he talks about having a, a child who is non-binary and, and talks sort of jokingly about him as you know this is my binary dad and there's this sense of like even even the sense of the gender binary being a thing for the younger generation in the book that is outdated and you know passe in 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 some ways um, and I, I thought that was so great because I, I think there are so many wider conversations that are happening in queer communities now too that that look at this sense of generational difference right and the friction that can come from it um, I, I know for myself like looking at younger queer generations I often feel like there's a um, a kind of a puritanical um, flavor that comes out in things and the relationship to language and the relationship to, you know, this is what we use for ourselves and no one else can say this. And it's interesting, and again, maybe this is just a function of aging, where you just, I find myself getting a little bit looser around those kinds of questions, right? And, and looking back on um, who I was when I was younger and, and I had that maybe not that puritanical element to things but that again that diehard fervor this is this and that is that and it will never change and in the novel what was it about those differences between the generations that fascinated you and continues to fascinate you as a writer well I was certainly interested in the tension between Kerala as a second wave feminist and Missy is a third wave feminist and all of the things that come up around around those kinds of um, differences. Like, you know, I, I, I developed as I wrote Carola, I developed more empathy for the for the position that she had, um, you know, being the first group of her peers who were told that they could, um, you know, forget about domesticity and prioritize their own journeys. But then that makes their relationship to parenting, which was still somewhat kind of obligatory um, in the heterosexist kind of spheres in which they operated. Like they they have, a, you know, she and I think mothers of that era had a lot of tension around like, where are we supposed to find meaning? Are we supposed to think of, you know, housework and having kids as 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 being less than? And um, and I was interested. And then Missy is sort of come, comes of age during the heyday of sex positivity and where to be feminist meant that you um, meant emulating guys and emulating the sexuality of guys. And uh, which is sort of like the era that I came up in. Um, and I was also interested in, in, in particular when Missy's older and she's dating Andy, um, the trans man with the, with the kids. Um, I really thought that that 
that scene that you describe where they're kind of joking around about how um, his step uh, stepkid thinks that he's binary and like square and corny, you know, for being so binary, um, you know, I lifted that conversation from my from my life, like just from conversations I was having with my peers about what it was like that are, you know, that I'm the age, I'm the age now where a lot of my peers have teenagers and, um, and what the differences are, you know, like how things that we thought were so radical as young queer and trans people are now um, kind of stodgy and square. And then there's also, as you, as you were saying, that kind of the other side of the coin is that like teenagers now um, have a, there's some, there's some like philosophical shifts that are happening that I don't quite understand in terms of, um, you know, as someone who grew up right as AIDS was, um, was becoming less of a thing, but like, you know, how far we fought to have sexual freedoms and the freedom to cruise each other, the freedom to be out in public. Um, and now the generation 20 years, 25 years younger than me are fighting for different things that I don't necessarily understand. Um, so I think there's a lot of like really interesting intergenerational dialogue happening right now. It, it really came out when my publisher in the US did a sensitivity read on the book and they and the sensitivity reader picked up on that conversation you talked about with the joking around about non-binary and, and trans identity. And they said that they thought it could be offensive to non-binary people that that uh, that scene, which I thought was very funny, um, and I did not agree. But and I also feel like, well, this is a whole other kettle of fish. But I also feel like you know, the, the idea of a sensitivity read being useful for art, for making art, is is kind of a dubious thing. But um, anyway, I just thought it was really funny, and I think it actually highlighted why I was so keen on keeping that scene, uh, which was to like you know, have characters speak the way that people actually speak and um, and explore like thorny, weird, confusing um, issues in ways that, that feel true to life and, and don't come off as like didactic or educational or expositional in the page. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, it leaves open a great transition to the next question. Okay. Speaking yeah. of thorny. <laughs> <laughs> and difficult. You know, many of many of the reviews and discussions around the spectacular talk about its approach to the ambivalence of motherhood, right, which is definitely something that, you know, over the last few years, I think there have been more books and more conversations about it, but it's still something that's quite controversial, right? Um, there's still this kind of traditionally patriarchal sense that women um, and mothers uh, just can't be ambivalent about that you know um to be ambivalent about it in any way is to somehow be a bad parent um and it was interesting to hear people talking about the ambivalence of motherhood within the spectacular because i think it's true and yet it was interesting to me because as a reader i didn't actually find any of the the characters in this book to be ambivalent um, about anything really but about parenting in particular i found that they're all you know ruth and carola and missy all in their own ways are just they're pulled in different directions and motherhood and parenthood happens to be one of those things that pulls each of them in one direction or the other, right? 
um, Carola, you know, has this daughter whom she loves, but she also, you know, is trying to keep this commune that she started with her first husband. She's trying to keep that together. She's trying to keep everyone in line in terms of keeping everyone healthy and keeping things going and is finding that, you know, her, her ability to keep her own self in line and her own self healthy is suffering as a result. And with Ruth, you know, she's, um, she has her son whom she loves and she's also feeling pulled because he, his father is, you know, cheating on her. And so she's feeling like this idea that she had of, of, you know, what quote unquote makes a perfect life is sort of crumbling right in front of her and dealing with, you know, that sense of, of disappointment. And Missy is at the beginning of the novel, you know, pulled in the direction of art, right? Pulled in the direction of her music and wants to follow that to the exclusion of all else. And it was just such an interesting, again, a theme that I keep coming up to in the, this podcast, that this exploration of these wider questions, right? Of essentially what it, you know, being alive means that you are pulled in different directions all the time. And making a life is about how you juggle those different directions, if I can mix my metaphors in the uh, in the middle of this podcast as well. Um, and I wondered if you could navigate or how you navigated that, and if you could talk about how you navigated that as the writer of the story, um, because it's so closely tied to the compassion that you, you know, wrote into your characters and the compassion that the reader comes away from the story feeling for these people. Um, definitely. I feel like it was important to me when because but because all of the characters at some point choose motherhood or choose to terminate a pregnancy um i wanted to look like in those particular moments for them to be really considering um their considering their situation the reality of their situation and like what would what would make sense for them in that moment and you know in the case of carola she at the commune um you know, she, they start the commune and they have these grand um, ideas of a gender neutral kind of world and, and the sort of um, like feminine, feminist of that era kind of world. And then in reality, uh, she ends up becoming sort of the de facto mother of a lot of 20 something unwashed men and like doing most of the labor, doing most of the labor of, of parenting and, um, you know, it's sort of a, a world where there's not a lot of restriction in terms of like, you do what you want to do, but you also want to be mindful of community and how you create community and how you make decisions as a group. And she just, I think she burns out being the one who is trying to keep it all together. And that's why she kind of ends up having a breakdown and leaving. And, and that's what's especially confusing for Missy because of all the adults around her in the sort of hippie subculture, she was, you know, Carola was the one who was, if they were going to jump off the top of the hayloft, she, they, she was the adult that knew that she would be like sober and watching them and, and making sure that they're okay. Whereas all the other adults were a little bit flakier in that kind of 1970s way. Um, And so it was, you know, particularly confusing to Missy that her mom would be the one to leave. And, um, and so, yeah, and with with Carola, I feel like, you know, I started writing her as a bit of a classic narcissist. And I was interested in what happens to, to kids of narcissists and 
how they develop a sense of self or how they maybe emulate um, who the parent was and how they behaved or how they can figure out how to not um, fall into the same traps. But um, I found that the more I was narrating her and the more chapters I gave her, the less I could really you know, pathologize her in that way. Like she had, I, I, to, in order to be able to embody her, I had to feel more for her than disdain and judgment. Like I had to really try to figure out how she could, you know, both atone for her mistakes, but also um, understand like how I could understand her as having made those mistakes and have how like um, leaving her family could have been, um, you know, an unfortunate, but like, correct decision for her to make at the time. And so, you know, a lot of the struggle that Missy and Carola have to relate to each other as they get older is, you know, Carola's refusal to truly apologize and Missy's, Missy needing that um, apology. And, you know, like it was important to me to, to, um, to make it so that things could stay a little bit messy in how they interacted and how they tried to resolve things. Um, but sort of at, you know, by the end of the book for there to be some peace and some acknowledgement. I think the way that all of us do at some point um, acknowledge that parents are uh, flawed people. And, and especially when you, when you have children yourself or you are around children, um, you know, it gives you certain insights into like how your parents raised you. Um, and you know, I, I just, I wanted it, I didn't want it to be too tightly knit together, but I wanted it to, um, to reflect the reality of like, how they made those choices about parenthood, um, or about abandoning parenthood, how they, you know, how they negotiated the kind of selfishness or selflessness of those positions. Mm. That's really lovely. What's one thing that you hope readers of the spectacular take away from reading the book i mean there's there's so much in it and there's so much of this navigating of difficult things right um is is there something that you hope your readers will really think about and really you know ruminate on when they come away from it hmm, question um you know you never know how a book is going to be read and you can't really control the experience and it's always really interesting to me to hear the various experiences that people have um after the book becomes an object and, and like leaves my graspy brain um but I, I guess i hope that they have fun with some like you know carola ruth and missy are 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 all like at various points in their lives like very eccentric quirky people <laughs> and they, they don't make a lot of conventional choices even though the character of ruth is you know the most you know she's very uptight British lady, um, but she kind of through the you know circumstances of her life has to make some unconventional decisions. You know when we meet her, she's in her eighties and she's having like good sex for the first time in her life, and it was really fun for me to try to write those scenes because I don't really understand what it's like to be in my eighties and I don't understand what it would have been like to be married to somebody I wasn't that compatible with and then to finally found find connection with someone at that age. Um, and so, yeah, so there are moments where I, I hope that readers have fun with, with where they're at in life. And also I hope that there are some moments of reflection on like the kind of meaning we put into motherhood and um, the reality that 
you know, once you have kids, you still are an autonomous being and have your own thoughts and feelings and, and like the struggle that I think a lot of parents have with figuring out who they are and who they still can be once they have kids. Mm -hmm. um, so those are some of the things, I guess. They're great things. They're great things. And I'm, I'm sure people will definitely be wrestling with uh, so many of those things, if not all of them coming away from the book in the best possible way. Um, so a, a bit of a wider question now about you and, and the writing, the writing life rather. Um, so you are now officially the author of a number of books, um, five novels, three books of poetry. Uh, and you've talked online in, in a wonderful way about how some parts of publishing never get old, right? Both the highs of it, you know, putting your book out into the world, the publication day is always so wonderful. And then the lows, right? Like um, asking for blurbs, which is always a, a thing that uh, many writers <laughs> complain about, I have complained about um, at uh, many a time. And I wondered if you had any words of advice that you might have for someone who's just starting out in the wondrous world of writing and publishing, and if that, you know, is, is perhaps tied to something that you wish uh, someone might have told you back at the beginning. Okay, so my advice, I, I have like some standards, standard advice that I give out. And with the caveat that it could be totally wrong for you and it's not, you know, all writers have different kinds of advice and they can all be true. Um, but I basically, I like to say that the most important thing about being a writer is being a reader and being a varied reader. And that if you want to be a contemporary novelist, I, I think it's important to read contemporary novels and to, um, and if you're looking in terms of publishing, I think it's really important to, to know where your work might fit in, um, in terms of what a particular editor or writer or publisher is looking for. I used to work in publishing and it was incredible to me the amount of mail I would get with queries for books that just clearly didn't belong with our list. Um, and in terms of writing, I feel like, uh, you know, sometimes I say that you shouldn't share anything you write until you've written 10 drafts and the 10th draft looks nothing like the first. Um, and I think that's the kind of advice that I give because I often don't take that advice. And I feel very, I feel very impulsive sometimes like when I, you know, that feeling and it's such a rare, rare feeling that like when you're creating something new and you're exciting and you're like, I'm doing something new and I can't believe I just wrote this sentence and I can't wait to share it. And like, I always have this like impulsive feeling to do that. And it's never quite correct. Like, especially, um, you know, so much of writing is about editing and changing and changing and shifting and molding and sculpting. Um, and so, yeah, my my advice to others is to is advice that I need to take myself most often, which is to like be patient and slow down and, and rewrite and really be careful about what you send out to the world because you only get a few chances to to uh, to do so. Um, yeah, that's those are those are my my uh, most frequent pieces of advice, I guess I would say. That is fantastic advice. Um, and as someone who I'll, I'll let everyone know, I'm one of those people who, you know, sent stuff off soon after finishing it because I was like, oh, this is great. And you're right. It never, ever, ever <laughs> actually turns out that way. So take it from Zoe, everyone. Being patient <laughs> and waiting for things is, is the best possible thing you can do. <laughs> um, 
Is there a writer that you're reading right now or have read recently that you think everyone should get to know? I just wondered if there was someone that you're very excited about. There are two books that I have read and reread over the last few years. Um, and one is a debut collection of short stories by an author named Jess Arndt, A-R-N-D-T, I believe. The N and the D might be switched. Um, and there are collections called Large Animals. And I just feel like they're, um, I, like I have a style crush on them. Like just aesthetically, their, their sentences um, blow me away. And I often, you know, when you wake up and you try to work and you, and you feel like you can't remember how sentences work, um, I feel like I will sometimes reread stories from large animals to to sort of spark my imaginative um, the neurons or whatever that's not lighting up at the time. Um, and then there's also a novelist and short story writer Samantha Hunt, who I only recently discovered in the last few years, and specifically her book The Seas, um, like S E A S The Seas. Um, and similarly, I've been rereading that book, um, there's, there's just something about it stylistically that speaks to me uh, in terms of her inventiveness with language and her um, in, interesting way of, of uh, creating character that, uh, that I would recommend both of those books. That is wonderful. I'm putting them on my list right now. So one last question before we go. Um, I'm sure you're getting asked this one a lot, but what is next for you? Are you working on something new right now, whether it's, you know, another novel or I know you're um, working on TV as well and pitching scripts. Um, is there anything that you're doing that you're particularly excited about? Yes, I am currently working on a new novel provisionally called, called uh, provisionally entitled The Fake, and it's about uh, two people who get taken in by a con artist and it's loosely based on the emotional experience I had dating a, a woman who lied to me about having cancer. And so I've sort of taken those, like um, that emotional story and, and put it into the lives of two different people. And uh, I'm, I think it might end up being a bit of a thriller in a way. Um, I'm quite excited about that. And I've also um, been working on a film with my friend Chase Joint uh, that recently got some telephone funding, which I'm very excited about. And uh, yeah, and he and I are also working on the ad the TV adaptation of, of my second novel, Holding Still. And so, those are the those are the big projects. That's great. Oh, I can't wait to see them come out into the world. I'm already excited about the new novel. Oh my goodness. Um, well, uh, oh, <laughs> thank you very much. That's very kind of you, um, Zoe. It was such such a huge pleasure um, to speak with you today. Thank you so much for making the time um, for your patience and your grace with my long rambly questions. Um, everyone, The Spectacular by Zoe Riddle is out now, uh, published by HarperCollins, available in bookstores everywhere. It is wonderful. You should get it, get a copy, read it, love it, talk to me about it. I am on Twitter and I would love to have these conversations um, and I'm sure Zoe would as well. Um, again, Zoe, thank you so much. Um, I'm just so thrilled for you and this novel and I can't wait to see what more comes of it in the coming months and, and uh, the coming lifetime for this book. I, I look forward to seeing how many people it will touch and really, you know, wind its way into their hearts. So thank you so much for writing such an amazing book. We are all better for having it in our lives. 
Thank you, Amanda, and thank you for your thoughtful questions. That was Amanda LeDuc in conversation with Zoe Whittall about her acclaimed new novel, The Spectacular. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. The only thing better than buying a great book is buying one from a great independent bookseller. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening.